One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Market Watch podcast by Amplify Live where you can access the latest market insights with me, Anthony Chung, the Head of Market Analysis, and joined by our Head of Trading, Piers Curran, getting you up to speed on what mattered in markets this week. Hello and welcome to Episode 5 of the Market Watch podcast, Amplify Live, with myself and Head of Trading, Piers Curran, who at the end of the week get together, have a bit of an informal catch-up about the major market themes in focus. And really two things we're going to touch upon, uh, if we have enough time, uh, is going to be the first thing, which is the dominating theme in markets, which has been the continuation of rising yields and the sell-off then that this is leading into the equity space and how this has generated a lot of media attention, uh, particularly given the fact that we're recording this the day after the NASDAQ fell 3.6% yesterday was the biggest uh, downward move we've seen since October last year. The other point we want to touch upon is that of the pound. And although the pound's weakened a little bit this morning with some of the renewed dollar strength overall, the pound has been putting in a stellar performance of late. And so we want to talk about the longevity of that move, what people are looking at. And of course, we had Boris Johnson's uh, roadmap released earlier this week. So first things first. Piers, I know you and Eddie did a fantastic kind of summary piece on YouTube um, that people can watch if they want about why yields are generally bad for stocks. But could you just give us a summary of the, the current state of play? Yeah, absolutely. Good morning. And uh, what a what what a week, hey? I mean, it's uh, it's kind of I just love these behavioral markets. Um, so fascinating to see, you know, human behavior kind of and, and irrationality in many ways, um, just kind of being scribed out on price charts of uh, pretty much every asset you can think of. Um, love it. Love, love these types of markets. Um, but yeah, in terms of that kind of yields higher, stocks lower thing, we obviously talked about it. Yes, uh, sorry, in, in the pod last week, but you know it's just got it's just gone another step, hasn't it? And I I still don't think yields are high enough for this to be a an ongoing situation. But what you know what's happening with some of those you know fashionable 
stocks is that ultimately a lot of these companies, you know, let's call them, uh, I don't know, renewable energy stocks or tech stocks. A lot of these companies, they don't, they don't have any profits yet. So when you're valuing a company, so we talk, we talk about these being long duration investments. That means that essentially the value of that company, which is defined by its stock price, the value of that is really being derived from future profits, okay? And um, because inflation's higher, inflation erodes the value of money. And so, well, sorry, inflation's not higher. Whoa, 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 let me back step. Inflation hasn't gone up, really. It's about inflation expectations have gone up, right? And this is driving yields up. But in terms of stock specifically, if inflation expectations go up, then we start to discount those future profits. And that's why some of these long duration type investments, they're the ones that are getting hammered this week. And they're all the fashionable ones as well, right? Where you're getting a lot of behavioral factors, um, you know, exacerbating those moves. Uh, the other thing was correlations. And I just wanted to get your, your take on that because one of the things that we've had is, um, you know, a chief reason for the initiation with a lot of this market movement that we've had is derived from the kind of boosted economic outlook derived from, you know, vaccine distributions, forthcoming stimulus, whatever the case might be. But there's obviously a pretty significant divergence at the moment on the key factor of the distribution of vaccines between that of the UK and Europe, for example. But yet European yields are rising like everything else is rising. So can yeah. you explain the, this, this kind of correlation effect a bit more? So I think that it's really interesting. If you look at the days this week, it kind of sums up correlations and where and, and it sums up how significant behavioral factors can be to prices. I think the, co the correlations should be, okay, if we look at and if we just purely focus on, let's just say 10-year bonds, okay, and 10-year bond yields, then all right, 10-year bond yields in the US are going up. And look, I get that. That makes sense from a fundamental point of view. Um, you know, inflation expectations are rising. We talked all about this, you know, with the, uh, you know, recovery from COVID and stimulus and X, Y, Z, right? So that, that inflation expectations going up, driving yields up. Okay, now what, if you kind of switch over to Europe now, well, European yields shouldn't be rising or at least nowhere near as much. You should be getting a what we call a widening of the spread between the US 10-year and let's, let's just say the German 10-year, okay? And that has been happening over the last few weeks, a widening of the spread. And the European yields shouldn't be going up, and that's because, um, well, I guess the most powerful thing is the fact that mainland Europe is well behind on the vaccine rollout race. Therefore, if you're considering how quickly economies are going to emerge from COVID, then Europe should is well behind, you know, the likes of the US, but especially the UK, actually. And so therefore, the inflation expectations picture in, in mainland Europe is a lot more subdued than it is in the US. Therefore, you should see a widening of the spread. The US yields rise and Europe's don't. But And that's in the main been happening, except until human behavioral factors peak. That's what happened yesterday. Yesterday, all yields went up. You know, and it started in New Zealand. If you think about the global clock, New Zealand yields started to spike. And that's because actually over there, they haven't been impacted much by COVID. They've got a housing bubble. They want to try and calm that down. You've got the central bank talking about maybe tightening policy. That kicked off a yield move. 
Australia went up, Asian yields went up, European yields went up, US yields went up, right? Everything went up. And that's, that's all behavioral, almost kind of frenzied panic. And like you look in the aftermath today, this morning, and you're like, what? what? Italian yields rising because of inflation expectations going up in Italy, please. Um, so I think, you know, these, these correlations are really interesting. Um, and these correlations are exacerbated by, you know, algorithmic trading strategies. They're exacerbated by, you know, hedge funds running correlation strategies. Um, so, yeah, it's just interesting. And you saw that in stocks as well. Um, so we've had that kind of divergence with the reflation trade, right, where actually tech has become less popular and people have been shifting into what we would call, you know, more tangible, productive sort of type assets. So you've seen energy stocks and industrial stocks um, and financial stocks going up and, and tech has kind of been coming down. And that's been the case until yesterday when everything went down. So I just want to point out that, that what happened yesterday was very human behavioral panic. Oh, let's sell everything kind of attitude. So, so from your experience then, the, that last summary you just gave about the behavioral attitude, does that mean that this correlation effect then is decidedly short-lived from what you've seen before? Yeah, it is. And I think if you're experienced enough and, and that you've seen these behavioral episodes many, 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 many times, then you, you firstly, you learn to spot that this is happening. Um, and secondly, these is the big behavioral moves that bring the best opportunities. So that means if you're sat back and you're logical and you're calm, these behavioral moves drive unsustainable price moves. It takes price to places that fundamentals don't agree with. And that's where you get that disparity where it's right now, now's the time. So really buying after a behavioral sell-off is perfect. But most people get embroiled in the mm -hmm. emotional side. And you know, most people with, I guess, if you don't have much experience, then you're not buying after the behavioral sell-off, you're selling during the behavioral sell-off because, oh my God, I'm losing money and you're scrambling and mm. panicking, right? Um, but I guess right there, that's the value of experience. Yeah, and, and that characteristic you were just describing almost sounded like we were talking about Jerome Powell. <laughs> because therein lies, I guess, uh, a good timing effect because, you know, this week we've had the semi-annual testimony. And for those who aren't familiar with this event, it's kind of the one time opportunity outside of the uniformed eight Federal Reserve meetings, which is a platform for the Fed to say something potentially about economic conditions or future monetary policy. And he resisted um, to say anything. You know, as we were expecting here on the desk. Um, but what, what's your what's your take on that? What on the Fed side and the communication side from them in this current situation? Yeah. So the Fed, as as was, I mean, as you say, on the desk, it was a bit of a no brainer calling what Powell was going to say and what he what we thought he was going to say is exactly what he said, which was, you know, anybody who's suggesting the Fed should start to tighten monetary policy. So that means 
you know, doing things like reducing the quantitative easing program or starting to talk about, oh, we might have to start raising interest rates and so on. You know, basically what the Fed was saying is anybody who's thinking in those terms that you just got it wrong. You know, this recovery, I mean, it's hardly even started, never mind it being sustainable enough to warrant the Fed maybe in, in not this year, not next year, maybe in two or three years time starting to kind of raise interest rates. So, you know, I think there's a very interesting sort of relationship between the Fed and markets. Um, and, and there's a kind of negative feedback loop in, in, in many ways, because if, you know, if markets start panicking, it drives up yields. And that's what's happened. And the problem with that is that yields going up does actually have a negative impact on the economic conditions on the ground, because a lot of these like 10-year yields, for example, are linked to certain borrowing costs. And so these yields going up genuinely does have a meaningful effect. But as, as long as it's a short-term impact, as long as that spike in yields is short-term, then, you know, it's fine. That, that effect will be quite negligible. And there was a good analogy that you were, you were telling me that, that, that you read about uh, Absolutely. earlier this week. What was that? Well, you'll know, you'll know it better than me, but there's this... Um, <laughs> A guy called Richard Bernstein wrote a great piece in the FT talking about this thing called the Ferber method. Although my kids are a bit older, so for me it was um, Gina Ford. I don't know yeah. if you knew a parents know about Gina Ford these days, oh, but basically, basically this is talking about you know how do you deal with <laughs> how do you deal with a toddler that's tantruming or that's crying at night, let's say, and the right way to deal with that is to ignore it because tantruming or well, what they're trying to do is attract attention. So if you then go and give them attention, well, then that's that, that's that negative feedback loop. Because if they get attention because they tantrumed, well, they'll carry on tantruming, right? And you've got to break that negative feedback loop, except it's super hard, especially like for a parent with those emotional strings being pulled. So it's a bit like the Fed and markets, right? So the Fed's the parent and markets are the baby. And when... <laughs> When, and at the moment, this week, markets are tantruming. You know, they're they're kicking and screaming, and the toys are getting thrown out of the uh, of the of the pram. And and the Fed needs to be that responsible parent and saying, "I'm going to ignore you. You can tantrum all you want, but us, we're going to do nothing. Thanks very much. Uh, you'll get over your short-term tantrum when you've understood we're not going to come to your rescue." You've just described my morning. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, every morning is, is kind of feels like that. So uh, I have every greater sympathy for the Fed because it takes a, a strong level head to um, not just give in uh, and resist to market temptation, which is to comment on every um, twist and turn, which ultimately would absolutely destruct their credibility and ability to influence markets through their greatest tool, which is communication, right? Beyond, beyond instruments of rates and QE, you know, ultimately it's the words that they say and the intentions they convey that really is super important for markets. So, you know, they can't yeah. risk the loss of that. And just lastly on that point, I think that those that are newer to markets, those with less experience, those and, and you know, those that have only been involved with markets in an era where 
monetary policy has been there to, to, to stimulate out of crises, let's say, then I think there's been a growing and building misconception about what monetary policy is for. Um, I think a lot of people, the misconception is that monetary policy is there to fuel speculation. You know, it's to kind of fuel market recoveries. It's not there to fuel market recoveries. It's not there for markets. It's there for the economy. It's there to support lending facilities that will then support the actual real economy. I just think some traders these days, you know, they, they panic because, hang on, what? The Fed's not, not giving us another shot of steroids. What's going on? Um, and, and so I think, yeah, people just need to get a bit of a reality check on that. Cool. Well, look, let's move over to have a quick chat for a few minutes about, about the great British pound. <laughs> <laughs> we hit, I mean, we've gone when in excess of 140 now in the pound against the dollar or cable. So um, it's been a phenomenally quick rise. Um, Brexit almost feels compartmentalized for the moment, given that there are or have been some headlines pertaining to that on financial services or Northern Ireland and so on. But the story is a vaccine one. So you know, what's your view about the pound at the minute? Yeah, pound's been super strong. And you're right, it's mainly about the vaccine race and, and how the UK is doing so well in that race. So it's about how quickly can economies recover? Uh, but it's also a little bit about the fact that the Bank of England have kind of really reduced expectations that we're going to go and see negative interest rates. So you, you might have said a slightly hawkish twist to that Bank of England meeting at the start of February. Um, we're also, obviously, we had a Brexit deal, don't forget. I know, I know it kind of seems a, a forgotten memory, unless you're embroiled in a business that's being impacted directly by that. But we had a we had a Brexit deal, and that's added to it. And then we've got Rishi, um, he's going to give us our, bu our, our budget next week. And so, you know, people wanting and hoping and expecting for a bit more stimulus. So these are the kind of factors that are driving the pound higher. And this is all despite the fact in January, actually, we had a lot of, well, a lot of the January economic data has been worse than expected. So it's like, ah, actually, hang on. We've started the year worse than we had thought, but it doesn't matter because the pound's trading off the idea that, yes, bad start, but it's going to be a much better spring, summer than, than we had expected because of that vaccine rollout. So the pound is, is super strong. But just on that behavioral thing, because yesterday I said everything sold off, even the pound sold off yesterday um, as we got some kind of dollar strength. But um, yeah, for the pound, um, I'm looking at 144. Um, that was the 2018 high. Um, that's the kind of target. We've pulled back just below 140 um, yesterday, but I'd still expect pound strength to continue. 144 is where, where I'm looking. Yeah, so I mean, the current numbers at the minute um, over the seven day rolling average cases are down just over 17%. Deaths are down, thankfully, nearly 30% now. And the vaccination numbers of yesterday now stands at 18.7 million. And a lot of the talk is um, any supply disruptions aside, that given then the continuation, the trajectory we're on at the minute, you know, utilizing pharmacies and mobile vaccination um, centers and so on that we could be in a situation by middle of May when the, the inoculation of the population is pretty much done. The roadmap had a four-step process of which the end date there was the 21st of June. 
how much how much emphasis do you put into you know the, the government obviously has um, a necessity to put forward some type of clarity to what this looks like yeah uh, in order to allow well for one businesses to plan and prepare two for consumers to feel confident about the eventual lockdown out of what's been a pretty much a year of their lives um, but these dates do they mean anything um, specifically well what I found funny about that Boris press conference on Monday was he said look we're not gonna uh, he said um, relaxing of lockdown measures will not be determined by dates it'll be determined by data <laughs> then set forth a whole set of dates <laughs> and I was like what okay that doesn't make sense um, anyway I think if anything if I was him I would be more cautious. I assume he's gone with the strategy of let's be on the cautious side with a rough idea on dates, with then the idea that if this vaccine rollout speeds up and they're talking about weekly supply going from 3 million to 5 million, which if they can have got the logistics right and can roll that out faster, then look, yeah, we're going to get everyone vaccinated by, by the start of June, right? So I think he's, what, what his plan is, is kind of set out some cautious dates with the view of maybe bringing those forward, which obviously everyone will love. And so from a political point of view, that's yeah. obviously going to be a positive. So yeah, that, that's what I would expect, but always kind of bearing in mind that, 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 you know, what happens if there's a supply breakdown, you know, we don't go from three to 5 million. What happens if this rollout of, of mobile, you know, vaccine centers doesn't, you know, hits a glitch or a hitch. And, you know, so that we've got to be keeping our eye on the, the downside risks as well, but there are upside risks. Um, and yeah, so, you know, keep an eye out for Boris, maybe, you know, bringing some of these dates uh, closer to us, which would be a good thing, obviously. Great. Well, look, let's, uh, let me just run over some of the highlights of what we've got to look forward to next week. And starting off at the weekend, we've got the Chinese official PMI data coming out. The Keijian numbers come out throughout the week. Uh, Monday, we see the likes of the European manufacturing PMI data. Um, the European service PMI has come out on Wednesday, but these are final readings. So of a lesser consequence to some degree for, for short-term traders. Probably the biggest thing is we've got something coming out this afternoon, which is of great interest, which is the US core PCE numbers. So with this kind of inflation focus, that will be quite important. And that comes in in the context of next week, we get the US ISM data, manufacturing, non-manufacturing, culminating then in US non-farm payrolls, plus throw in then an impending update on the US stimulus program. So this whole kind of, I guess, focus at the moment about uh, the perception of inflation and growth and so on isn't going to go away anytime soon and some key information uh, coming out there. Um, otherwise, just, just wrapping this up, uh, again, hopefully you enjoyed uh, this latest episode. If you did, I uh, would really appreciate it if you could rate and review if you're, if you're listening to this on, on a platform like Apple, for example. Uh, also as well, I had a fantastic chat with a guy called Bilal Hafiz, who's the founder and CEO of a firm called Macro Hive. He used to also be the head of global research for Deutsche Bank and Nomura for the best part of 20 years. Uh, and he and I had a fantastic conversation about not just his view on current market topics, but also his career and some advice on that side. So uh, if you are a student, it'd be a really great listen for you as well. And we're gonna release that on our Amplify YouTube channel 
on Saturday. Um, so keep an eye out for that as well. Piers, always a pleasure. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks, Sam. And you. See you, guys. See you later. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.